Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Dusty White. I'm here with Bob Thune. We're pastors at Quarmdale Church. We're also here with Pastor Chris Emmelman of First City Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. And today we're talking about the limitations of faithful presence. Still missing Bethany, our usual host. She's still enjoying vacation. I mean, she'll be back by the time you hear this, but on the moment that we're recording this, she's still overseas enjoying life. Maybe she'll bring snacks. That would be amazing. Although it'll be from the UK, so it won't be anything good. Does the UK, yeah. They, they have don't. any good snacks there? I just, I just made this joke with some of my friends from England who were in New York with me. I was like, hey, what do you guys eat when you like go out for good British food and they're like Indian food? Yeah, <laughs> There's no good English food. It's just they eat Indian food over there. there. There's this great meme that says... It's funny that the, something to the effect of, it's funny that the British traveled the entire world, conquered the world looking for spices and they don't ever use any. Yeah. Wow. It, it that's just so like true. beans and fish wow. sticks. Whoa. And, yeah. yeah. That's, that's what they said. Fish and chips is like the yeah. one thing you can depend on. It's just like, you can get some good fish and fries. But, and very stale desserts. Um, in this episode of the Wednesday Conversation, we want to tackle a brand new piece that just appeared from Brad East at Mere Orthodoxy that I uh, sent to some friends of mine and said, hey, I think we're still going to be talking about this 10 years from now. I think it's that important of a piece. And uh, Brad East makes a proposal in this piece that I think every church leader needs to be thinking about and talking about. And it relates to church and culture or the, the Christian's relationship to culture, which of course is a perpetual question because all of us are enculturated. We, we live in a certain culture. And yet we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we're always asking, how, what does it mean to be a faithful Christian who also is embedded in a culture? And that requires both that I embrace the common good aspects, the common grace aspects of my culture, but also there's always things in every culture that are idolatrous and wicked and evil that need to be resisted. And so there are two major thinkers in this stream in the last 75 years that Brad East interacts with and then says, let me take what they did and show you a better way. Let me extend their proposals in a new direction is kind of how he frames it. And I think Brad East is a very intelligent, thoughtful person. He's a professor at Abilene Christian University down in Abilene, Texas. He writes pretty frequently for places like Mere Orthodoxy and First Things. And I just find him to be a very thorough and thoughtful writer. So what he's going to do and what I'm going to do for you on this podcast in the next few minutes is He's going to summarize the approach of uh, Richard Niebuhr in his famous book, Christ and Culture, back in 1951. And then he's going to summarize the work of da James Davison Hunter in his book, To Change the World, that was written back in 2010. Um, James Davison Hunter, still working at the University of Virginia as a sociologist, one of the most influential sociologists and thinkers in modern American life, and a close friend of Tim Keller. And so most of what Keller sort of does in application as a preacher and an apologist, Hunter forms sort of the intellectual backbone to some of that work as a sociologist. And so um, I want to, so, so Brad East basically says, here's two models or two proposals for how the church should engage culture. Let me tell you why I don't like either of them or why neither of them quite gets us there. And let me propose a third. And I think the third version that Braddy's proposes is really, really interesting. And Chris, you said you had lots of thoughts as you read this whole thing. Most of them are kind of thinking out loud, but I've got, I've got plenty. Chris has some thoughts. All it right. seems like his third approach is like, let me take it a little bit further. Yeah, that's what he's saying. He's going to say, let me extend it. So let me start with 
H. Richard Niebuhr, Christ and Culture, 1951, a classic book. If you graduated from seminary and didn't have to read this book, you, your degree is worthless. Get your money back. Your degree is worthless. Every seminary uh, has assigned this book since it was written because it's that foundational to understanding the church's relationship to culture. So Niebuhr lays out five approaches to church and culture. Let me, let me summarize them for you real quickly. Christ against culture, the Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ and culture in paradox, and Christ the transformer of culture. Let me just walk through each of those and explain what he means. So, so the first model or approach is Christ against culture. You might think of this as the radicals. Think of the radical reformation, the Anabaptist tradition. Niebuhr says, this tradition affirms the sole authority of Christ over the Christian and rejects the culture's claims to loyalty. So think Anabaptists, Mennonites. The most extreme example here would be the Amish, right? People who uh, reject the claims of culture and feel like um, obedience to Christ requires me to radically disassociate with culture. And so this is why most of people in the Anabaptist tradition will not serve in the military because they are committed to the Sermon on the Mount and they believe that Jesus told us that we're to love our enemies. And so therefore I can't pick up a gun against my enemies. And so you can see how that is a embrace of the ethic of Jesus in a way that causes me to have to sort of disconnect from my culture where every other American my age might be going to war, but I cannot, I have to be a conscientious objector because of my loyalty to Christ. Okay. So that's Christ against culture. You can see how my belief that Christ calls me to this sets me against my culture. All right. The second category, the Christ of culture, this is just basically think like liberal Protestant theology for the last 200 years. You know, it's just basically the accommodationists. Hey, there's no real tension between the claims of Jesus and the claims of culture. In fact, take what in your culture is the finest ideals and the noblest institutions and the best philosophy and those th just baptize those things and we'll call that Christian. And so Brad East says the risk here is that people subordinate the teachings of scripture to the dominant cultural norms of the day. And that's basic Protestant liberalism. All right, Christ above culture. This is um, a paradigm we might call synthesis. And Christendom is really the expression here. St. Thomas Aquinas, Brad East says, and Ryan, uh, Richard Niebuhr says, is the, the sort of classic paradigm here. Think of the great cathedrals of Europe, right? They're built for the worship of God, but they're built with public funds. It's like, we're taking your tax dollars, and we're going to build a cathedral, and we're going to worship God there. And you don't have to come there and worship, but we are going to take your tax dollars to build it. So it's that idea that Christ is Lord above culture. And this approach would seek sort of the Christianization of culture, not in a way that forces Christianity on any individual, but in a way that says this culture is going to show by its sort of public expression that Christ is Lord. The fourth paradigm is Christ and culture in paradox. You might call these people the dualists. And they would frame the problem less as a problem of Christ and culture and more in terms of God and man. Niebuhr talks about a sort of oscillation here. So th I think Martin Luther is the best example of this. And here's, here's what it feels like. On the one hand, I stand with God against the sinfulness of humanity, right? Like I, I'm on the side of God 
God's word is true. And so I'm standing ethically and morally with God in the way the word of God calls humanity to account. And yet at the same time, I'm also part of the problem because I'm a human and therefore I'm complicit and bring my own sinfulness to bear. And so at the same time that I stand for God against the world, I also stand in the world condemned by God's holiness. And so there's this sort of oscillating back and forth. And you really see this in Luther, in Kierkegaard, in Karl Barth. There, there's this sense that they're sort of radically dualistic. They can identify on one in one moment with the majesty and holiness of God, and they can identify in the other moment as part of the problem themselves and condemned by God's uh, just law. So there's this paradox, this back and forth. And then the fifth paradigm is Christ, the transformer of culture. Uh, you might call these people the conversionists. This is probably what most of us would classify ourselves as. St. Augustine fits here. Uh, John Calvin fits here. The, the later Karl Barth fits here. These people neither want to replace the culture nor leave it alone, but convert it. Um, and yet, Brad East reminds us, Niebuhr allows that that process is sure to remain incomplete this side of glory. So if you, if you grew up or are currently a part of a, a church that meaningfully has a desire to see the city transformed by the gospel, to see people come to faith and that that should affect how we live in the world, but that you know it doesn't mean that we're going to Christianize the culture, but it does mean that we should see leavening influence and see the kingdom of God expressed around us in fuller and fuller ways. That's, that's the conversionist perspective. All right. What's the difference between Christ above culture and Christ, the transformer of culture? It's the, it's basically the difference between it's, it's the argument that right now, Joe Rigney is having with the more Keller kind of people. So the Christ above culture are people who would say the, the, the public institutions of our culture should reflect Christianity, whether or not human beings are Christian. Mm-hmm. So you know, we should publicly fund churches. There should, you know, the, the Ten Commandments should be on the wall of every public school because they're just foundational to society. So Christianity should be enshrined in the government, right. in the institutions. Right. Okay. And the transformers, you know, some might say that, but most would just say like, yeah, it doesn't matter if that's true or not. You know, the tra- in other words, a, tr- a transformationalist could be as at home in communist China as in the United States of America, because really what they're really after is, yeah, we just keep converting people with the gospel. Eventually that leavening influence is going to bear fruit. So one is a more top down, one is more bottom, bottom up. up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's, I, I just gave you a three hour seminary class. There you go. There's, there's, you, sh- they, you should get paid for that. Yeah. That's, that's helpful right there. That's a summary. Venmo of, Bob for that lesson. <laughs> that's a summary of Niebuhr's book. Some of that is Brad East did a really good job in this article, sort of condensing it down. And then I pulled the book off the shelf and sort of, you know, did my own work there to, to summarize as well. But some of that, uh, some of that work is Brad East. So those are the five paradigms that Niebuhr gives. And in fact, if you, um, if you read people who read Niebuhr, and I think Brad East makes this point in his piece, they suspect that he saved the fifth one for last because that's where he would put himself. And so it's sort of like, let me give you the four bad points of view. And then the one you should be is kind of how the book tees up and Niebuhr never really tips his hand but most people would suggest, well, it's like a good sermon. You put the point you actually want to preach last because you're building to that one. Okay, so not a bad, th- those are five classic categories. Christ against culture, the Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ and culture and paradox, and Christ the transformer of culture. Then in 2010, James Davison Hunter wrote his book to change the world and took a little different approach to this. And so Hunter said, um, rather than thinking about the relationship between Christ and culture, we should think about 
models of cultural engagement. How do Christians engage the culture? How, if, if Hunter says the, the basic Christian impulse is to change the world, how do people go about seeking to make that happen? And so he has four modes or models of cultural engagement. He says some, the, the first model is defensive against culture. So think fundamentalism here. This is sort of a protectionist defensive enclave that is sent, that is set against the world, right? We're, we're defending ourselves against a hostile or an encroaching or a worldly culture. So you have the model of defensive against culture. Second, you have relevance to culture. This is sort of seeker-sensitive pop evangelicalism. This is the liberal mainline churches. This is, we should be relevant to the culture. And the problem here is, of course, to be relevant to the culture, we tend to give away more than we should. And that leads ultimately to a watering down of the faith and a loss of integrity. And so that generally is what you see here, is that the relevance to strategy often leads to pretty thin churches, theologically speaking. Then there's purity from culture. Contrary to the defensive against posture, this the purity from is more of a posture that says, yeah, we don't need to even care what's going on in the culture because the church's job is to be the church. And so the church has no obligation other than to be itself, is how Braddy's describes this, which which leads to a certain kind of disengagement from law, the politics, the arts. This this is a Stanley Hauerwas, if you're familiar with him, this is kind of where he would fall. It's sort of a, hey, you know what? Just worry about being the church. Um, don't try to transform the world. Don't try to change law, change politics. The church's job is to consider its own purity, to fight for its own integrity, to be a distinct people, resident aliens, to use the title of Howard Wass's book. And then the fourth model, says James Davison Hunter, is faithful presence within the world. And uh, we have loved this model for the last 13 years since I read this book, because this sort of named what I think we were most trying to live out, this idea of faithful presence within the world. That is, okay, so think about you're a Christian and you work at a company or you're in a school or you're a professor at a college or you know you have a role in society. Your job is to be faithfully present in that place and to live with Christian integrity there. And that faithful presence over time has an influence and God uses that to bring impact. And so, Dusty, to use your baseball team analogy, you're just supposed to be faithful, present, faithfully present as a Little League coach, and sometimes that means you're going to get to preach the gospel to some people, but sometimes it just means you're going to have a good influence on some kids, and either way, God's going to use that faithful presence in a cultural institution called a Little League to bring fruit. Yeah, we've talked a lot about this, of just you know showing up in your community and, and uh, taking part to just be a part of the natural good for the natural social embodiment of being around. Yeah, the beauty of this, and I think the reason I so resonated with it when I, when James Davison Hunter's book first came out is because I came out of a tradition that basically said, if you're not preaching the gospel all the time, you're not really a faithful Christian. You know, it's like, you got to always be sharing the gospel. So the way my heritage would have understood your, your role at your job was, hey, that's cool that you work with those guys. I hope you're taking them out to lunch and like sharing a gospel tract with them sooner or later, because that's kind of what faithfulness looks like instead of the paradigm that says actually you being a faithful employee being a good boss being a good neighborhood member you don't have to hide your christianity to do that but neither do you have to be overtly evangelistic all the time the goal is to be faithful and to be present and that that bears fruit over time and it's sort of that jeremiah 29 right 
seek the welfare of the city where you are because in its welfare, you will have welfare. And so this has been a, a, a really helpful model. Now, here's Brad East's critique of James Davison Hunter, which I think suddenly has more relevance in the last six years. Here's what East says. Hunter's presentation of faithful presence within suffers from an overly sanguine view of the professions and institutions in which Christians are called to be present. He starts with, he gives this thought exercise. Think about some professions or spheres of life where faithful presence just is not possible for a Christian. Here are some examples. Pimp, prostitute, pornographer, stripper, slumlord, drug dealer, torturer, assassin, abortionist. Like there's just a, there's a whole bunch of elements of society where it's like, yeah, you can't actually be faithfully present there. You act, so, so this model does not apply to every aspect of society. There are actually some places in society where we'd say, yeah, if you're a Christian, you need to quit that job because Christians can't faithfully do that. That's why, we can't, that's why we can't find a good divorce, uh, Christian divorce lawyer. It is true. What about if you're an assassin for the good guys? I mean, there are some, there are some interesting categories here because he went on to name like politician. Yeah. Cause he's like, get, you're like, if we stretch this, can you be a, can you be faithfully present as a Paul? There's like some categories that start to get interesting. I'm like, mm, yes, maybe, but maybe not. Cause I'm pretty sure there's some assassins in the book of judges. Wow. Ehud. Okay. He yeah. assassinated you on the toilet. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Chris is going old Testament on Chris us Chris is here. preaching through judges right now. Apparently there's also the, uh, I think of the guy in the chosen. That's the zealot. Who's always like practicing his ninja moves. Yes. Yeah. My daughter's like, who's that ninja guy? Oh, that's a, uh, whatever the disciple is. That was a zealot, Simon, the zealot. So East goes on to say Hunter's vision does not prepare believers to consider all the ways their faith will require them not to participate in the workforce, not to attain lucrative careers, not to benefit from the economy, not to engage the culture. It is a social ethic of relentless affirmation and only modest and then partial and incrementalist antithesis. So he says it's too much affirmation. It's not enough antithesis. And I made this point maybe two or three years ago as we were sitting here, guys, when we talked about, I think it was when you brought us the article about stage two exile or stage three exile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole point that person was making was Christians are being moved more and more to the margins. And there's going to come a time where you might have to make a choice between keeping your job or being a faithful Christian. And since we talked about that, that's happened to more and more people in our church. Like I've had more and more conversations with church members who are like, Hey, here's what my company wants me to do or what my school wants me to do. I don't think I can in good conscience do this anymore. Uh, we had, I had a, a, a school teacher come to me. This has been a couple of years ago, young person in our church who had recently graduated from college and kind of in their first teaching role and said, um, my principal called me in and told me that the school policy now was that if a student identifies as transgender at school, we are not allowed to tell their parents. And he said, as a Christian, I feel conflicted about that because I feel like it's my duty to let those parents know about their kid because the kid is a minor. And if the principal is telling me I may not do that, what do I do with that conflict? And I think more and more people are facing those kinds of realities in their workplace. And Brad, he says, that's what faithful presence doesn't take into account. Yeah. There, are, there are moments where you can be either faithful or you can be present, but you can't be faithfully present. Yeah. 
it's also interesting, and maybe you're going to go here next, where he talks about the types of jobs, how Hunter sort of privileges white collar sort of jobs versus blue collar. And and I I think it's important to note there that's that's tied up in how Hunter sees cultural change, though. Yes. That that cultural change is actually a top down experience. Like he would argue, it's top down, it's never bottom up. Right. And so that's why he puts the emphasis on sort of the those who are in management leadership type positions. But to to Brad East point, that creates some issues. What about those who aren't in those spaces? What does this mean for them? Right. So here's what East offers. I realize we're 20 minutes deep in this podcast and we're just getting to what we, what we told you Brad East is going to do. Um, but that took a, I wanted you to understand the backdrop so you can see Brad East's proposal here. He says, so instead of thinking about five types of churches related to culture or four postures for changing the world, we ought to think about four modes of faithful engagement with culture that are essentially overlapping and non-competitive with one another. In fact, he says, typically, these are all at work simultaneously. Each mode applies in every possible historical and political context, pre-modern and post-modern, established and disestablished, privileged and persecuted. Here are the four. Resistance, repentance, reception, and reform. He's saying these four modes of engagement are all happening simultaneously. One, resistance. There are times when we're called to resist injustice and idolatry wherever it's found. Um, whether the regime is friendly or hostile to Christians, there are going to be ways in which we need to resist. Second, repentance. The church is called to always and everywhere repent of its own sins. And the credibility of the gospel is often threatened by the church's failures to repent. Third, reception. The church is always everywhere called to receive from the world the many blessings bestowed upon it by God. This is a high view of common grace. This says in every culture, there's beautiful and good and true things we are to receive and celebrate. And then fourth, reform. When we preach the gospel, it brings reform. It generates an adjustment in the way things are. What I was particularly provoked by, and the reason I think this is a powerful proposal by Brad East, is he argues this applies in every historical time and under every political regime. You can apply this to Christians in China. You can apply this in America. You can apply it in Brazil and Argentina. Doesn't matter where you are in the world, these the church is always going to be called to do these four things. Resist, repent, receive, reform. And that I did feel when I read Hunter, like it feels uniquely American. Like there's something about mm-hmm. both Hunter and Niebuhr that seem to assume a Western cultural setting for the church in its engagement to culture. And I, I've always thought about like, well, how would a Chinese Christian hear that? Or how would a South African Christian hear that? Or how would a Christian in Indonesia hear that? And so the, when I read East saying, hey, what about these four modes that are all happening simultaneously? That's what resonated for me. It's like, yes, those work everywhere. Mm-hmm. So here's, here are my, some of my thoughts. Um, this, I think this is what I'm wrestling with, having reading, reading this and reading some other proposals about what to do kind of with our political moment. So the question I want to propose is, yes, in some ways, this like what Hunter's proposing with others, there's a uniquely Western or American contingency to it. But shouldn't that matter? 
do we need a universal model is, I guess, one of the questions I'm asking. So Brad East is kind of proposing, hey, here's things that work no matter where a Christian could be. But do we have to operate that way? Yes. Okay. There's my argument. Do you, yes. I, I just want to answer your question. Now, what, what's the question under the question? Ver, versus, okay, we we are living off of, or we're, you know, kind of post-Christendom. The West was built around this idea of Christendom. Shouldn't that be the thing that we continue to fight for? Because, so just kind of go by comparison. Was the West better off in Christendom versus post-Christendom? And in, that's our contingency. That's our history. Yeah. Leave China's history out. Leave the Middle East history out. Just think of our own history within that context. Aren't there things that we should be trying to fight for, reclaim, and kind of say, hey, that's that's unique to our situation, but that's unique to our situation. And so we're going to continue just to fight for that. Let's just use these four categories with regard to Christendom. Because I think where I would push back is if Bavik is right, and Chris, we know that he always is. Bob, Except on uh, one little point, I disagree with him. But you, that, yes. you just started with Bavink to come yeah, to your I know he, he's, he's trying he, to wash you. Watch yeah. out. Bavink would say, right, that that because history is always progressing toward new heavens and new earth, mm-hmm. we can't we don't want to go backwards and say, well, here's the golden era that we should go back to. That there's always that we as Christians, our job is always to say, what is God doing in the now? Yeah. And where does he want us to be next? And how yeah. do we move forward? So when I think about the question of like Western culture and Christendom, I think, well, the answer isn't let's go back and fight for the Christendom we had 300 years ago before modern politics or before the Enlightenment. There is something rich about that that we should retain or reform, but I don't think the answer is let's go backwards. What about like what a guy like Doug Wilson's proposing, Christendom 2.0? Right. So, so that's interesting to me, but I'm, I want to apply these four. So I, I would say there's things about Christendom that we need to resist, right? In, in terms of like there's, there's dis- deforming influences that Christendom brought into Western culture, one of which is cultural Christianity. Okay. And I think we would say as conversionists of like, actually people need to be born again. And so it's not, a, we should mm-hmm. resist the assumption everybody makes that they're a Christian because they were born in the Midwest. That's not true. Sure. There's, yeah. there's repentance required of in a Christendom world, Perhaps there are ways the church has failed to provocatively proclaim the gospel. Perhaps we've kind of assumed some mm-hmm. things in a Christendom world that we need to repent of. There's a lot we can receive that is the heritage of Christendom, and there's things we should reform and say, hey, this started out good, let's recover it, right? So think about something like the rule of law or like the legal traditions that we inherited that were built on hundreds and hundreds of years of English common law and you know, sort of Roman law before that. Hey, we should reform that. We should be, instead of moving beyond that to some sort of like Marxist version of law, we should be saying, no, 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 those things are important. Let's reform the the legal profession around the best of what it is meant to be um, and, and ask what would God want for us in that, in our particular culture. Yeah. In that yeah. enculturated way of doing law, what, what can we reform? Again, I'm just thinking out loud with these things. I'm trying things on here. Um, Been reading a lot on this and and just pondering the idea. Okay, one of the things that I I read recently was it was just this comparison of yeah, Christendom in whatever form you want to take had its flaw. Everything, every system is going to be flawed. This side of the new heavens and new earth. But when you think about going back to what we talked about last podcast. What, what, what are the conditions for human flourishing? What, you know, the true, the good, the beautiful, those kinds of things that we want to see propagate in society to the degree that they can in a fallen, broken world. Is Christendom a better version or is 
the neo-liberal order better with all the craziness that yeah, yeah. we have. So, so with that, okay, if we want to say, okay, a form of Christendom is better, should we not want to see that take root? And that, and that has very specific political theology and political agendas behind it. Should, should we not be in some ways fighting for a more robust version than just kind of the, the transformationalist kind of perspective that's like, hey, maybe this changes, maybe this doesn't, where the Christendom model is more like, no, we actually want to pull the levers of power. We want to intentionally go at the institutions and the cultural. Yeah, but you're asking, yeah. so what, what I'm trying to argue is you're asking a political theology question, which is not what Brad East is talking about. Brad East is saying, regardless of whether you're in favor of Christendom or neoliberalism, you can still apply these four okay. things. To that degree, if, if that is what, okay, yes, then, then 100% here. Because I think the the interesting the interesting debate would be to see um, for someone who's like very pro Christendom and someone who's very pro neoliberalism or Western liberalism, what would they disagree about as far as receive, resist, repent, reform? Like how would they maybe apply those categories in different places? But I, I think what I like that Brad East is doing is it feels like he's giving us the tools to actually have that debate in that conversation. Okay. So at that level, okay, then then that that's helpful to see kind of at what level this is operating on versus kind of institutional versus this is, these are um, modes of being, these right. are kind of ethics yeah. within that or. I think modes okay. is the right word. You yeah. would, you would itching to say something. Well, I was just going to say, I don't think I read all of this through the lens of in light of technology and in light of uh, if the West is de-churching and declining, if Christians are declining in the West, I read, I read all of this through the lens of we have to think more globally as the people of God. So I don't think he would, I don't, I didn't read it to say like, stop being faithfully present. I just read it to be, add these categories to wherever you're at being faithfully present. Yeah. Chris, let me use a more narrow example in a way that might help us understand the difference. Dusty, so let's take you and I, there was a guy in our church in a company a few years ago who had a really robust vision of like faithful presence. I want to be a faithful Christian within my company. As the company instituted more and more LGBTQ-friendly, DEI, gay pride, you know, all these things that were like institutional of like, hey, you're going to hang this on your office door. We're going to put the gay pride flag on our Twitter accounts. We're going to like these expectations for employees to do this. This person started wrestling with like, well, I'm called to be faithfully present. Like I want to stay in this company because I'm a Christian here and I've got great relationships with my coworkers and God's really using me. But what do I do about all this? that's where I think the category of faithful presence breaks down because if what mm -hmm. we're trying to hold on to is the presence, right. then we're going to invite them to compromise faithfulness. Whereas Brad East's category of resistance really yeah. helps there because we can say, actually, maybe you're called to resist that. Like maybe you need to go yeah. sit down with the supervisors and have a conversation about this and resist this and to the point of maybe being willing to lose your job. That category, it seems to me, is what is what Hunter's thing is missing. Yeah. No, I agree. I 100% agree. It, I, I remember reading to change the world and thought it was great. Cause it, I think it gave me new categories coming out of, you know, kind of a more fundamentalist background and, you know, religious right kind of political categories, but more and more I've come to see, Hey, there's, there is some good truth in that in the sense you want to be present, but it didn't feel thick enough. It didn't right. feel like it had a snuff of a spine as we've kind of seen the way culture has progressed. Well, and that came out in 2010, right? Right. And in 2010, you're kind of like, yeah, this is great. Right. And, five, six years later, you're like, oh, this isn't going to hold up. Well, yeah. and, I, and I'm just saying like, hey, you know what? It's a really Christian thing to get fired. 
Like maybe maybe yeah. what you need is to get fired from your company for being a, a convictional Christian. That's okay. Like it's not okay if our model is faithful presence because now I have to ask, like, man, maybe I was failing to be like faithful or present. But if, if the model is resist, repent, receive, reform, and I'm realizing like, hey, this is a moment of resistance. And if I get fired for this kind of resistance, okay, not the end of the world. I'll go be a plumber or an mm-hmm. electrician or go work at a Christian company. or I'll, There's a hundred other things I can do yeah. that aren't this job. And I think Christians need to, I've, I've said that for years on this podcast of like, man, we need to have a vision that like, hey, the job you're in right now is not the only thing you could ever possibly do. Yeah. And yeah. if you have to give it up for the sake of faithfulness to Jesus, great. No well, big deal. And additionally, I was just talking to a guy who was a big executive in our church uh, at a local company here. And and he, his words to me were, I'm, I'm teaching my kids right now that they're going to need to be starting their own businesses yeah. and doing their own things. Yeah, creating because, their own spaces, yeah. And his point was basically like at the top right now of a big organization. Or you got to be company, woke, man. You're going to have to be really woke to keep that job. Yeah. And so his, his point was, I'm just trying to equip my kids to figure out their own businesses. Now, a little bit of that is maybe anxious or reactionary. But I think he's probably right, you know. Yes. He's on to something. This is this is the thing though that's always been provocative to me about Hunter's argument in his book is that he essentially argues Christendom is a work of kind of the sovereign work of God in history and not something that was planned or strategically accomplished. So it wasn't like, hey, we're gonna create Christendom, let's right. go do it. It's more the hey, that was God's sovereign hand in history, and maybe that will happen again, maybe it won't, and we can't control the levers of history. And I still am compelled by that as I'm wrestling through kind of what I was saying before of this idea of some who want to try to fight for a new Christendom, kind of 2.0. To what degree is that real and possible? I would say, Chris, in America, it's not. And that's, so that's what I think the weakness of all those. Well, okay, are. yeah. And so, so that being the case, and and I think I agree with you. Right now, I think I agree with you. Where then these categories do become helpful because we recognize, hey we might just have to recognize there are certain political objectives that just won't happen outside the sovereign hand of God. We can't plan it. We can't strategically sort of make it happen. But if we live by these things, it's almost, again, what, what Hunter wants to argue is this faithfulness of Christians over time. And these things, the doors, God just kind of sovereignly opened these doors. And so maybe we're seeding the possibility of it, even if it doesn't happen through these things and and kind of live that way. Yeah. I think, if I think about the word Christendom, we're talking about the Holy Roman Empire. We're talking about early Western Europe, medieval societies in Europe. We're talking about pre-French Revolution. We're talking about England, you know, early on in its history, or I guess not early in its history, but in, in the Middle Ages. Uh, America has never been a Christendom culture. America was founded on the principles of political liberalism yeah. with a deep influence of Christian roots. But because America's founding premise was how do we make Baptist congregationalists yeah. and Catholics all get along with each other, it it's never had like the same Christendom impulse that I think has been present in places like Holland or yeah. you it's, know yeah. the Western Europe. So it just feels to me like the proposal is a little different, and and like the people who are sort of advocating for a renewed Christendom, what I think they're really advocating for is like a healthy, robust Christian presence in public life. And I would be in favor of saying like, well, cool, let's aim at that instead of calling it Christendom 2.0 or whatever we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Let's just call it like a, a, a more, a fuller, a more fully Christian society. Yeah. And let's see what it looks like in the American context to sort of aim at that in some fuller ways. 
but that seems different to me than a going back to something that never really was here on this continent. Yeah. No, it's a good point because you can make the argument that in some ways the, the seeds of um, the American government system and cultural system was, was always going to sort of lead to this because it had detached so far. And, and to the degree that it did exist, that was just living off of kind of the cultural capital of Christendom until that kind of ran out. And then now here we are. So if it never really was embedded in the American system and structure, then we can't expect it to ever revive. So that's a good point. I think Jamie Smith's words are the craters of Christendom. That's how he describes sort of what you're talking about, living off the sort of heritage. It's like our culture is impacted by these craters because it was struck by the reality of Christendom. And so there's whole ways we think that are the heritage of Christendom. But that's different than sort of like an institutionalized version of, yeah, Christianity. Yeah, you're never going to, even the the most hardcore sort of conservative Christian who wants to return to, you know, the glory days of America, you're never going to get them to agree to enshrine Christianity into like the laws, the way that it was in medieval Europe. Yeah, short of a mass revival where like lots of the population decides that would be a good idea, which that may happen. That's what I'm saying. That's where the conversionist thing is interesting to me. It's like, well, I think we could see the gospel get us there, mm. but we're not there right now. Yeah. You know, the neighbor, the people I live on my street with are not like sweet. Let's enshrine Christianity as the public law. Of the <laughs> yeah. You know, so first I got to get them converted and saved and get them to love Jesus. And then we might be have closer. But even then it might be hard sell. Cause a lot of yeah. <laughs> most Christians aren't, aren't down with that. Yeah. Here's one of Brad East's final paragraphs. This proposal, the one he's making here about resistance, repentance, reception, and reform as the four modes of the church's engagement with culture. This proposal understands that the faithful presence of the church is a differentiated presence. Sometimes the spirit beckons believers to inhabit a culture from the inside. Sometimes, however, the spirit issues a different call. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, Revelation 18. The fidelity of the church's witness is measured not only by its presence to the world, but also by its difference from the world. That difference is called holiness. And I think that's a good place to land this podcast. So for all of us who have been really helped by the paradigm of faithful presence, I think Brad East is issuing a helpful corrective here to help us remember faithful presence is differentiated presence. And there are times and moments where the church's witness needs to be holiness, difference. And that's where his model really helps us. So again, we will post the article uh, or a link to the article in the show notes here. And I, I, it, I think this is especially for church leaders, but also just for Christians who think a lot about their engagement with the world and with culture. This is a very helpful and meaningful proposal that I think um, should gain some traction our thinking and our conversations and our discipleship. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have snacks, if you have snacks or thoughts or questions or future podcast topics, Send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Not sure you can send snacks to an email, but you can try. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.